Uh, I want to do this first part rather quickly, uh, or at least hopefully so. Uh, It starts in 21, and it says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Guys, uh, chapter 16 opened with a long list of people that we looked at several weeks ago, um, and that was a list of some Christians who were in Rome. Uh, this list, this briefer, shorter list, starting in verse 21, is, um, is a list of the people who are with Paul in Corinth. Paul writes the letter of Rome, uh, Romans from Corinth, um, and he is, this group of people has gathered around him uh, there in Corinth. Uh, he was staying, that is, Paul was staying in the home of a Gaius, um, who is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1 as being someone that Paul baptized. But apparently Gaius was a, a man of some means, and he has furnished Paul with what's known as an amanuensis. That's a new word for you, an amanuensis. It's, it's basically a secretary. I don't know whether this somewhat surprises you, this whole idea of verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, uh, he indeed did because Paul was prone. He often dictated his letters. You find it in the book of Galatians. You find it in the book of 1 Corinthians. And you find it in 2 Thessalonians. A mention of some kind of amanuensis, some kind of secretary to whom Paul dictated on a couple of occasions. Uh, Paul even says, I'm taking up my own pen with my own hand to write this final sentence or two. But in the main, Paul dictated these letters through a secretary, through um, a guy who is is taking the dictation. His name is Tertius. Now, Gas, the name Tertius, um, oh, look at there. The name Tertius um, means um, third or number three. Now, guys, really, nobody would ever make mention of that, I don't think. This would come to nobody's attention, I don't think, unless or until, down in verse 23, he mentions uh, our brother Quartus. Do you see that? Quartus um, is something that means uh, fourth or number four. Now, if, it, if, it, if the text had only included uh, just Tertius, number three, we probably wouldn't have said anything. But now there's a, there's a mention of a number four. There is um, number one would have been Primus. And uh, number two would have been Secundus, which means first or number one. And this means second or number two. But you have mention of these two, which apparently is a reference to the kind of uh, home that, um, that, that Paul was living in, or the home of Gaius, that he had uh, slaves in the home, and they were numbered. They were numbered number three, number four, uh, and then number one was, of course, the kind of the household manager. Uh, he was in charge of all of the, the affairs of the home, um, and then number, uh, number two was next in line. And, and, and these people were promoted. They were promoted from number four to number three, number three to number two. And, and the, the, the ideal job, of course, was the number one job. But these were all um, lists of slaves, apparently, in the home of Gaius. Um, <clears throat> um, that kind of number one, number two, number three, number four boy is a... Is a, is a uh, a system that existed even in 
the early part of this century in China, we know, uh, number four boy or number two boy. And apparently that's what you have in the home of Gaius. Um, everybody knows Timothy. He was Paul's young protege from Lystra. Um, Paul thought very highly of Timothy. I want to show you this because it, it, when I think of Timothy uh, and how Paul thought of him, I remember a sermon I heard when I was in seminary. Um, this is out of Philippians chapter 2, verse 20. Listen to what he says. Uh, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy. <laughs> you know Timothy's. Uh, I was in seminary. I was a senior in seminary. And Frank Barker, the, the man, some of you know that name, Frank Barker, came and that was his text. And he was talking about that Paul... Um, at this late stage in his life, uh, had to send Timothy because there was nobody like him. All the rest, mm, they weren't trustworthy. All of these people around, uh, around Paul were not trustworthy, but, but, but he could send Timothy. It's kind of a pitiful statement, um, but, but Frank Barker was pleading with us to be somebody that Paul could send. It was, it was really a, 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 I still remember it. Um, this Sosipater guy um, is mentioned in Acts 20. He's from Berea. This Jason guy was Paul's host in Thessalonica, mentioned in Acts 17. Lucius, is that's the only time where we, we think he's mentioned. We don't know much about him. But these were a group of guys that were gathering around Paul in Corinth who were on their way to Jerusalem. You remember that's mentioned in chapter 15, verse 25, that Paul is taking money to Jerusalem. And these guys are gathering around Paul before he leaves Corinth, and he's going to go with Paul to Jerusalem. And this is the, uh, the names of the, of the group. Erastus probably did not go on that trip. He's mentioned as the city treasurer. Uh, an interesting observation because it means that um, Christians were holding offices, public offices, in a pagan government. Uh, you know, like our own uh, Wayne Mashburn, you know. Uh, but it seems to be um, uh, something that Christians were were certainly uh, engaged in doing, um, a, a believer working in a, in a pagan government. Um, and then the, the one thing that I would draw your attention to is this number three and number four boy, uh, Tertius and, and Quartus, are mentioned here on the same level and on the same ground with Paul and Gaius. Only Christianity produced that, ladies and gentlemen. Only Christianity produced that kind of societal um, earthquake that a slave could be, um, could be esteemed and, and known as beloved with, with his owner and with the Apostle Paul. That is, that is a huge um, change that Christianity brought into the, to the Roman culture. Now, guys, we, we, again, we got to do this pretty fast, but I, this might interest some of you. You'll notice verse 23 ends with, and our brother Cordus greets you. Now, look at the next verse. It's verse 25. Where is verse 24? It skips from verse 23 to 25. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> 24 is not in there. Now, most of your Bibles will, um, uh, will have some kind of notation as to where verse 24 is. Uh, mine does. Mine at the bottom of the page says some manuscripts insert verse 24. And, uh, and, and if you've got a 24 in your Bibles, it reads like this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. But, ladies and gentlemen, um, I, I, I hesitate to even bring up this subject, but it, it's, it stares me in the face because it might upset some of you, and it doesn't need to upset you. 
But let me, let me just try to um, uh, uh, um, soothe some of those ruffled feathers of, what? What? There's no 24 in my Bible. What, did I get a defective Bible? I mean, what's going on here? Well, guys, um, I hope you realize this, that in terms of the New Testament and the Old, uh, Christendom is not in possession of any of the, what they call the original autographs, the autographa. We don't have any of them. Uh, we don't have the original copy of the book of Romans. Uh, we don't have um, the, 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 about the only thing that we have that we think is original is a fragment uh, that's in the British Museum of the uh, Gospel of John chapter 11. We have nothing that came directly from the pen of Paul or the pen of Tertius. What we have is copies. Now, guys, uh, I'm going to try to explain this real quickly. Um, This is a Greek New Testament. It's a Greek New Testament. I I, uh, am in it at least once a week uh, trying to figure out something. But I don't know whether you can see this from the back or where you're sitting. But this is the, this is um, uh, this is uh, the, this is the book of Acts. Where I'm, this is Acts chapter twenty, and here is the text. I don't know if you can see that, that that's the text going from verse uh, one to verse six in the Greek New Testament, right there. Everything down here is inserted for what the, by what they call textual criticism or textual critics. In addition to that, there is this companion of this book right here. And what I would do, I mean, if I wanted to know about the textual criticism of this particular Acts 20, there's some kind of flaw, or, or uh, mis- not flaw, some kind of disagreement on Acts 20, I would go to this little book and turn to Acts 20, and they would tell me about the manuscript evidence uh, that supports that. Now, do you understand all that? <laughs> Guys, there is something known as textual criticism. And then there's something known as uh, higher criticism. Higher criticism are the guys that want to talk about JEDP. Um, I don't, you, uh, that probably doesn't mean anything to you. But they are, uh, these are the guys who are trying to disrupt and overturn any kind of authenticity or reliability of the scriptures. They're called higher critics. These guys are the enemy. These guys are not. Textual critics are trying, what what we, we don't have any of the original autographs, but what we do have is thousands of copies. And I'm just going to read you a couple of sentences out of this this little Lee Strobel book, um, The Case for Christ, and he's talking about the mountain of manuscript. Let me just read you a little of this. Um, Consider Tacitus the Roman historian who wrote his Annals of Imperial Rome in about 116 AD, the first six books exist today in only one manuscript, and it was copied about 850 AD. So do you see that 735 years from the time it was written to the time that it was copied, and we have one copy of uh, Tacitus, Roman history, the Annals of Imperial Rome. Books 7 through 10 are lost. Um, how about this? Uh, the, the, um, well, we, I won't read that part. The quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison with other works of antiquity. Next to the New Testament, the greatest amount of manuscript testimony is of Homer's Iliad, 
which was the Bible of the ancient Greeks. There are fewer than 650 Greek manuscripts of it today. Some are quite fragmentary. Uh, uh, They come down to us from the 2nd and 3rd century A.D. uh, When you consider that Homer composed this uh, in 800 B.C., there's about 1,000 years between Homer's work and the earliest copies. Okay, you you got that? Let me tell you what what we have in in terms of the scriptures. Um, In terms of the scriptures, we have some 5,000 copies I was trying to, it was written in here someplace. Um, uh, Some 5,000 copies of manuscripts and the dates on those manuscripts are between 150 to 200 years um, separated from the original. Now, (laughs) did you get any of that? The point is this, ladies and gentlemen. When it comes to ancient Roman history uh, written by Tacitus, we have one copy of, we have one manuscript And there was a thousand years between the writing of it and the copy that we have. When it comes to the New Testament, we have 5,000 copies and 150 to 200 years between the original and the copies. What a textual critic does is sit down with the 5,000 copies... And he tries to piece together, he takes the older ones, they have more validity than the, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, the older ones than the newer ones. And so he comes to a statement like this and he finds this, this verse 24, let's say, in a manuscript that was um, 400 years old. And what he concludes by comparing all these manuscripts is that verse 24 is not in the earlier manuscripts. It's not in the earlier uh, copies. And so he then concludes, hmm, verse 24 was an amendation. It was a change. Now, notice what the change is. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What if it were in there? Would it change the message of the book of Romans in the slightest? No. Now, all I'm saying to you guys is that um, just because verse 24 is not in there, I hope that won't undermine your confidence in the scriptures. I hope it will increase. Guys, we do not have the originals. What we have is a mountain full of copies that have allowed us to piece together the thing in such a way that we have, we have a real sense of confidence that what we've got is true to what was originally written by the, by the Apostle Paul. Now, guys, for those of you who don't know these things, for instance, if you go to the end of the book of Mark, you probably don't want to preach on Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. It's not, is it 16? Is that right? I think it is. The last uh, 11 verses of Mark are probably not a part of the original manuscript. They were late additions. Here's, some, here's one that'll hurt you, uh, break your heart. But the story about the woman caught in adultery in John 7 and 8, really the, the close of 7 and the beginning of 8, is probably not something that happened during the lifetime of Jesus, according to the textual critic. Now, um, if it didn't happen, that's fine. But if it did, it is, it's a wonderful story about what, something that Jesus did. But there are 
there are questions as to their um, original, their inclusion in the originals. Okay, that's what the textual critic does for us, and um, that's why you pay me so much money to go through these little books uh, like this and and come to some kind of firm conclusion as to um, the reliability of the text. Okay, now, but if you want to insert verse 24 in there, you go right ahead. It's not going to change a thing, but it was probably added later on as, <clears throat> as this one letter of Romans circulated throughout the, um, the Christian world. That verse 24 was probably a late edition. All right? Now, I hope that gave you some kind of confusion. Let's close on something that's not quite so confusing. Let's, let me read this last part. Verse 25. And now unto him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. To bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Take a look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Does that strike you as odd? Um, What Paul is simply alluding to is that among the competing gospels that were available to his audience, the one that you heard from me, that's my gospel. Um, Now, what was that? That is, what was the gospel that they heard from Paul. Guys, um, that's one of the reasons that the book of Romans is so dear to me. It's because the book of Romans is pretty much about the gospel. Um, If you will ever study it on your own, it opens in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. you, You ought to just count the number of times the word gospel is mentioned in chapter one. This is a book about the gospel. Um, How about this one? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's in chapter one. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Um, And he closes um, with a reminder of this gospel that they heard from him. Now, what kind, what are some features of that gospel? Guys, I would love to write all this on the board, but it's just, it, it takes too long and it's, um, um, let me give you some features. One, two, three, four, five, six features of this gospel that Paul delivered to that world. Number one, he makes very clear that this is not of human origin. Um, that this gospel is a gospel of God. Um, that this gospel is something that's revealed. That is, every, word, every time you see that word revealed, there's richness to it because this is not something made up. It was something that came and was revealed. It's a gospel that has, it has a divine origin, not a human origin. Secondly, his gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is, is not good advice. It is good news. Every gospel preached by every major religion in the world today contains nothing more than a different set of advice. 
how it is that you can construct a life that will ultimately be uh, approved by the deity. Let me give you some advice as to how to live so that the deity will smile on you. This gospel is not good advice. It is good news. It is good news not about something that you are being asked to do. It is good news about something that God has done for you. It's a proclamation. Here's some good news for you. And very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, sinners don't need advice. They don't need another self-salvation project. They need some good news. I was at a presbytery meeting yesterday, um, and, and I, I guess the most moving thing about the whole day was a report that was made by a young man who, um, who had taken his youth group out to a, um, a reservation, uh, an Indian reservation, Native America um, um, reservation, um, and I think it was in Washington State or Oregon. Do you know how many... Do you know how many uh, reservations are in the United States? Indian reservations? I had no idea that there was this, this many. 331 Indian reservations in the United States. Do you know how many... Of course, I'm a part of the PCA. Do you know how many PCA churches are in those 330 reservations? One. But this thing is flourishing, and I think it's in Oregon. And he said that 70% of the, the teenagers on Indian reservations are homeless, um, most of them are, are alcoholics, and the youth are, are racing towards the gospel that is being preached by this, by this church. The, the, the point is, because it is such good news. It's not, now listen, here's what you need to do. Let me get, let me, let me, let's make sure you got the Ten Commandments straight so that you can, you know, figure out a way to make yourself acceptable to the deity. No, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel is a proclamation. It's not advice. Third, it's a gospel about a God who is able. Um, He begins that way in verse 25. He says, now to him who is able. You know, guys, that's where it all ends. That's where it all begins. That's where it all ends. With a God who is able. You know, you hear me pray this. I, I, I pray this a lot because it's somewhat meaningful to me when I, I, I pray something about that this God found a way to save somebody as wicked as I. Because this God, by the way, that's mentioned. And now, I mean, uh, the, the idea of the ability of God um, uh, now unto a God who is able. Um, this is in Jude 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. This gospel is about a God who is able to present you faultless. Faultless. And it has nothing to do with your contributions. Very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, the only thing we contribute is what Augustine called splendid sins. That is, our best works are splendid sins. That's what we contribute. This God, this gospel, is about a God who is able to present you faultless. Okay, it's, it's of divine origin. It's good news, not good advice. It's about a God who is able, fourthly. It centers upon Christ. 
He is the content of the gospel and he is the subject of the gospel. The, he, is the, he is the hub and all else is circumference. Guys, it is not a matter of, of your opinions about sacraments. It is not a matter of your opinion about eschatology. It is not a matter of your opinion about tongues. It is about Christ. It centers upon his person and his work. And that's the solution that this able God of ours found to save people as wicked as we are. Uh, it centers upon who he is and what he's done. Uh, the same gospel Paul mentions again and again in the book of Romans, it was promised in the Old Testament. Although it was couched in somewhat cryptic language, it was a gospel that was there. It was promised. It was found as early as Genesis 3. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 were just creation. Well, the gospel, its first announcement is found in the next chapter in what's called the Proto-Engelion, the, the, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. It's promised in the Old Testament. And lastly, its goal is to see all peoples, all nations be brought to the obedience of faith. Guys, saving faith is characterized by obedience. I don't know what you've got. I mean, that's why, you know, you hear me say this a lot. I don't use the word faith anymore. I always say saving faith because there's a lot of people who've got something they called faith. But it's not going to do him any good. I mean, Jesus says that in the most terrifying statement in all of the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, did we not, did we not? And I will say unto them, depart from me, I never knew you. What did they have? Well, they had some kind of intellectual assent to the, the existence of some historical facts, but they didn't have saving faith. And the key characteristic of that faith is that it is obedient. Now guys, if you cannot make the, the distinction between necessary obedience and meritorious obedience, then you need to start and get that down pretty well. There's nothing meritorious in our obedience, but it is nonetheless required. Do you get that? None of my obedience adds up to Anything salvific, but it's a part of this faith. It's a required obedience, but it is a non-meritorious obedience. There's no merit in it, ladies and gentlemen. We have no merit. Do you get that? We have no merit. We only supply demerit. But you notice how he says it. By the way, this is not the only time he says it like this. He says it in chapter 1, verse 5. He says it in chapter 10, verse 16. The obedience of faith. The key characteristic, ladies and gentlemen, of faith is that it finds the, the will and the rule of God to be its delight. We, 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 don't, we don't obey it perfectly, but we find obedience to be the path that is the safest, the best, the most comely, the most enjoyable. We love to obey. We, we disobey plenty, but obedience is what this faith does to us. It turns us into people who love to obey. 
Flaunt the law of God, and ladies and gentlemen, what you've got is not real. Flaunt the, um, the holiness of God, and what you've got is not real. I don't know what you've got, but it ain't real. Because this, this real stuff, the gospel, uh, involves a faith that obeys. And in that obedience, there is nothing meritorious. Did you get that? You've got to get that. We come to verse 27. And um, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. You know, guys, um, I, I come to the end of my teaching of the most important book in the New Testament and probably the most important book in the entire Bible. I, I would say, I mean, arguably, the most important book in the entire Bible is the book of Romans. We started in 1999. So how should I end? How should I end a 14-year study of the most important book in the whole Bible? Well, this is a pretty good way to end. The way that Paul does. He ends by praising the great and sovereign and merciful and eternal God on whom the gospel is centered. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is not about saving you. It's not about saving me. The, um, the summum bonum of the gospel is not that we're saved. The summum bonum of the gospel is that God is glorified. And the fact that he does save. That he's willing to save. And he found a way to save. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about a manifestation. It's a proclamation of the great and glorious and praiseworthy, merciful God who is on display in everything about the gospel. Um, he, he says to the only wise God, you know, um, we don't have time to, to look at this, but in, in, um, in Isaiah 45, um, Isaiah mentions that there is only one God eight times in one chapter. Paul was always thinking about that God. The idea that, um, that there is an exclusive way to this God is utterly repugnant in our culture. I'm sorry. But, um, and I think so many of you would agree when it comes to figuring out how to approach this God, I'd rather take the advice of this book instead of the advice of this culture. Um, this God demands exclusivity. Um, this God permits no other gods. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The great sin of Israel was idolatry. And the great sin of the 21st century evangelical church is idolatry. We preach a God that doesn't exist. The Christian church in America today has, has got a hold of your best life now. And, and somehow sanctified that thing 
into being the message of the church. It is the very antithesis of the message of the church. It is the very antithesis of the message of the New Testament. It is the very antithesis of the message of the gospel. This gospel is about the onlyness of God. There is only one God. And he demands exclusivity. The people, I mean, um, our culture, <laughs> um, you know, I think I've said this before, but Carl Sagan had a, had, a, um, had a TV show on years ago, and it was called The Cosmos, or maybe just Cosmos. I don't know if there was a V in there, just Cosmos. And, um, and he always started the show with this line, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. <laughs> That's what your culture believes, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel is about the only God who is, the only God who ever was, and the only God who ever will be. And he is on display in all of his beauty in the gospel. You know, I'll quit like this. Um, if you don't know the story of, uh, I think his first name is William, but his last name is Robinson. If you don't know the story of um, um, this hymn, you ought to go Google it because it's a great story. But in the hymn, um, we sing this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, how prone to wander. And the thing that binds us to this God is grace. And what I'm trying to learn in my life at the ripe old age of 65 is that that grace is enough. That's what the book of Romans is about. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the privilege to have a book in our hands that declares and explains the gospel in such detail, in such exquisite beauty. A, a book that does not allow us to come to conclusions um, on our own but buffets us and disciplines us into seeing the gospel in all of its beauty and, and that only. It is, it is not Paul's gospel. It is your gospel. But it's a gospel that competes for the minds and the hearts of men and women. Because even at the church, 
We're telling people that if they're just good boys and girls and they live a good life, they have nothing to worry about when they stand before you. And that is a lie that smells of smoke. And I pray, Father, that you will make us very clear, very precise, very definitive. Not because we're trying to start an argument, but because we're trying to protect and define and broadcast a gospel that will save. We do wander from it, O God. Let your grace bind us like a fetter because we are prone to wander. And Lord, would you teach me, along with several people that, that I care for in this congregation, this, this group of people called Gracie Band, would you teach us? Would you teach us how to live a life that is convinced that your grace is sufficient for us? By the Holy Ghost of God, convince us of that, Father, if nothing else. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and good night.